Welcome to the Aerospace Executive Podcast, featuring in-depth conversations with executives, leaders, influencers, and journalists in this dynamic, high-stakes industry. Hosted by Craig Pickett, founder of Northstar Group, the boutique executive search firm for the aerospace industry. You'll learn how top aerospace executives are developing their people, competing for talent, overcoming challenges, and adjusting to industry trends to drive growth and profits. And now, let's join your host, Craig Pickett. You're listening to the Aerospace Executive Podcast. I'm Craig Pickett. And you can find more of these episodes on iTunes or Podbean, or just Google the Aerospace Executive Podcast, and we'll show up. Our mission here is to have just it's pretty simple, just have relevant conversations with uh, industry and business leaders on a variety of topics. We try to be both informative and entertaining. Um, if you have some questions, comments, suggestions for a, a new show, um, please reach out to me at 910-509-7129 or email me at uh, craig at northstaresg.com. Uh, pretty soon you'll also be able to uh, download these uh, off my new website, which is uh, www.northstaresg.com. That's in uh, currently being redone and should be launched here in the next 30 days. So looking forward to that. Um, Hey, we try to keep these things at about 30 minutes, but uh, you know, this episode today is with, uh, with John Alvarez and uh, it goes about an hour. And um, the reason it goes about an hour is because John's story is just absolutely fascinating. Um, you'll, you'll, you'll find it to be amazing, uh, in a lot of, a lot of different ways. John is a fellow I first met, um, in probably October, November, 1987. We were both, uh, boot ensigns together in, uh, Corpus Christi, Texas. He was going through primary flights, uh, sure, primary flight training. I was kind of passing through Corpus Christi and, uh, we became friends. Um, John is also the, uh, well, let's, let's go back. John is also uh, a member of the Air Commando Hall of Fame, and he's also the very first aviator in U.S. history to be restored to full combat flying status after he lost his leg while flying combat. Um, I think what you'll find really, you know, really interesting about the story is not just John's uh, perseverance, but people in the nation who stepped up to help him in his quest. John, how are you? Good afternoon. So uh, we'll go back. You and I met what almost about thirty years, thirty-two years ago now, nineteen eighty. Yeah, 80, 88, 88, 88, 88, 88, yeah, 88, 89. Yeah, because we got com- we got commissioned in eighty-seven. And then flight school. Yeah, we're boot ensigns together in uh, Corpus Christi, Texas. Correct. That's right. Long time ago. I'm still holding a grudge for when you stole my table and tried to pass it off as tried to pass the broken one off as yours. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll get into that another day. So uh, alrighty. So all good. So you uh so so you and I both have, we you know, we we're both naval aviators. We we took some different paths, but um, you got a pretty interesting story. So ultimately, you left Corpus Christi primary flight in Corpus Christi, went over to Pensacola, and flew helicopters. Correct. Yeah, transition helicopters was winged in 89, uh, chose H-53s, um, knew I wasn't going to go carrier aviation at that point, so I, I wanted uh, the biggest, baddest helicopter the, the Navy could, could uh, muster. My on-wing was a Marine H-53 driver, uh, and so was my fixed-wing on-wing was a, a Navy H-53 driver. And at one of those fly-ins, I got to fly in a 53. Um, and I was like, man, this is what, you know, was one of the newest aircraft in the fleet at the time for the Navy. Actually got to pick one up as a, as a co-pilot um, out of uh, South Florida and fly it all the way back to Alameda when, it, when I was uh, first flying, uh, my first flying station there, Naval Air Station Alameda. Holy cow. So Florida, yeah. Florida to California in an H-53. Yep. Yeah, that was, that was quite a trip. Being a, you know, just right out of flight school, New in the unit, um, you know, a humongous aircraft. Actually, and at that time, too, one of the fastest uh, helicopters in the fleet. How long did that trip take? 
Um, it took us four days, but again, we, we stopped. We stopped in Corpus Christi. My flight, uh, well, the, the aircraft commander wanted to stop in Corpus, so we actually spent a day there. Um, you know, again, this this helicopter back then, um, you know, over the years, they, they, uh, uh, max, max speed was reduced, but I think, you know, we were averaging 150 plus knots ground speed the whole way. So oh, wow. uh, for a helicopter, it could move, you know, in fact, at uh, one point we had like 220 knots ground speed when, when we were uh, in California going north from LA. Holy cow. And we had some wind, yeah, winds behind us. We had, we were way up at altitude and had the wind behind us too, so. Yeah, I see the, um, I, yeah, I live right, I, I live right here in Wilmington, North Carolina, and I see the uh, the 53s from New River flying over the beach. And no matter how many times you see them, it's still a uh, pretty amazing helicopter, but uh, all good. So you went and flew 53s, you were 11 years in the Navy doing that, and then you transitioned over to the, to the Air Force, correct? All right. Yeah. So I guess around I, after my first assignment in Alameda, I was extended a little bit after the first Gulf War and then um, went to Naval Postgraduate School uh, to study uh, aeronautical engineering. I thought at one point too had a you know opportunity to uh, to go to the space program or apply for test pilot school. Uh, and while I was there, there was a uh, an exchange program being started between the Navy and, uh, and, Air, and, and Special Ops Command, um, there was already a Marine Exchange pilot uh, working, uh, working with the Air Force and, and then another one working with the Army Special Ops. Uh, they were setting one up with the Navy, so it was going to be a 53 driver and an 860 driver. The 60 driver ended up going to the rescue forces, and uh, I was selected for the program. I had to... Uh, pull my application to test pilot school and, um, you know, under encouragement from leadership, you know, I was selected for this. So this was back in 94, 95, I went out to Kirtland air force base to, to get uh, transition training in the MH 53 J, which was the air force payload, uh, special ops insertion extraction platform back then. And, uh, so it was kind of, I was actually like a shipboard, and uh, a shipboard instructor on that side of the, of the fence for a bit at the schoolhouse while I was learning how to fly the 53 uh, for the Air Force. And, uh, and, and actually, it was really uh, learning more of the mission and how they accomplished the mission. Um, and then got to my line unit at Herbert Field right outside of Eglin Air Force Base um, in December of 95. Okay. So basically, so you 11 years in the Air Force. Navy postgraduate school, and then you did a transition tour to Air Force Special Ops, flying the uh, the payloads. Yep. So yeah, eleven years in the Navy. Uh, out of those last three and a half, I was assigned to Air Force unit. Um, you know, a lot of stuff happened in that three and a half four year period. Uh, I was offered an inter service transfer. Um, this is about the time I was selected to lieutenant commander uh, in the Navy, the Air Force were short helicopter pilots, and, and on top of that, they were short special ops pilots. Mm -hmm. I guess they just weren't getting enough people to volunteer. Uh, and I was already an aircraft commander, flight lead, instructor pilot, um, and uh, it, it worked out. I mean, but there was a lot of stuff that happened between, between me getting there as a Navy pilot and then me transitioning. Right. Um, so once you transition, so once you made the transition, you know, what's tell tell us about the life of a uh, a Navy slash Air Force special operations pilot. So interesting enough, um, through through that period, um, as the Navy guy in an Air Force unit, Navy Special Warfare Command took an interest in it. Uh, Navy Special Warfare Development Group, uh, in particular, Dev Group was very interested. So because we were supporting them uh, in the, both the East Coast and the West Coast SEALs, along with Special Forces and Army Rangers, were primarily the the uh, the customers. Um, and so, you know, it was like a lot of, hey, you're a Navy guy in there. Why isn't the Navy doing this? You know, the Navy did have a dedicated uh, special ops helicopter unit in, in Vietnam, actually had two. Uh, and then later they were put in the reserves and there was a fight back and forth on whether they were going to continue uh, and whether SOCOM was going to accept them as, as, uh, as support units for um, in, in the joint special ops world. And interesting enough, then later the HCS squadrons in in uh, in Iraq uh, after 9/11 played a big role. 
um, in supporting special ops. But uh, at the end of the day, the Navy, Naval Aviation, uh, absorbed that into the larger, larger units, that, that mission set into larger units. So you were flying, were you, the whole time you were there, were you flying 53s or were you, uh, were you? No, I, I was, uh, I, well, I, I was primarily there, you know, at the beginning as a payload pilot, uh, flying 50, MH-53s. Um, during that time I was there early on, I was uh, recruited into another unit, um, the 6th Special Ops Squadron, which are combat aviation advisors. So they're, they're equivalent to special forces, but for aviation. So you go out, train, advise, and assist um, other countries with uh, air power. Uh, and uh, I was, uh, previously that was a, a classified detachment inside of AFSOC, it became a squadron. Um, I was attached to them uh, for their Latin America operations. And uh, there, I mean, I flew, uh, I got qualified in the Puma, uh, which is now an HH-225. Uh, Mm -hmm. um, the Gazelle gunship, uh, later I flew MI-17s, Russian aircraft became expert, an expert in the MI-17 series, um, actually had got some fixed wing time in, in the Antonov, uh, 32, um, C-47 of all things, a Basler conversion, mm -hmm. turbo prop C-47, um, and Casa 212s, but primarily helicopters. And, uh, I spent a good part of my Air Force career in that unit. I spent, uh, three assignments in there and commanded it, uh, later. Um, so th that was, a probably my really, uh, you know, most interesting part of my, my air force career. Um, so again, I, I transitioned at the 11 year point, uh, pinned on 04, the air force recruiter or the air force or the assignments guy said, Hey, pin on in the Navy. That way we figure out what your data rank is. And we don't have to try to calculate it. You have your data rank. And I was already in Air Force unit. I, you know, stationed in Northwest Florida, drove over to Pensacola, signed all my paperwork to lot, you know, to, to basically sign out of the Navy, got my DD two, you know, two fourteen from the Navy, and then that afternoon came back to Herbert Field, got sworn in, mm -hmm. uh, into the Air Force, became an Air Force officer overnight while I was still trying to figure out how to put my Air Force uniform together. <laughs> um, the lady at the exchange actually put my uniform together for me. Yeah, the sales lady at the at the uh, uniform shop taught me that, and uh, one of the only requirements was my squadron commander said, "You're going to sing the Air Force song in front of the squadron by yourself with no background music, and you better know all the verses and all the words to it." So when I did that, I first sang the Army, or excuse me, I first sang the Navy song, and then went into the Air Force song because <laughs> I yeah. so interesting. Yeah, interesting enough, it, on my uniform, I was allowed to wear both wings. You know, because as, as you and I know, we still have scars from when we used to get blood wings. I still have the scars in my chest from my Navy wings. Uh, but I had to wear my Air Force wings above it because uh, that's your latest uh, designator. But uh, usually you got an interesting conversation is, hey, how, do you, how come you're walking around with both sets of wings? So um, I, I spent 13 years after my transition in the Air Force, retired with you know, like a few days short of 24 years. Um, and then. Uh, Went to work at, at the special at U.S. Special Operations Command in Tampa at the Joint Special Ops University, where I was leading research as a senior fellow and uh, senior faculty there. Um, shoot, and then 2013 got recruited to to go into industry. Went into a small company that uh, conducts contractor-owned, contractor-operated um, intel and reconnaissance, flying particularly Beechcraft series of aircraft, right. the King Air. Series 300s, and uh, our company also modified 300s for for special use, uh, and then transitioned to a larger aerospace company, which I'm with now, called Leonardo uh, DRS. Sure, gotcha. So, what you know, what was it like? You must have, you know, special operations has got a big uh, big spotlight on it now. It's the uh, the big focus of the military. What was it like uh, being a spec ops pilot? What you know, challenges? What'd you learn from? Uh, what'd you learn from the the guys in the, the squadron and the guys you were uh, using, you're basically your customers. All right. So, I mean, you know, in the, in the early mid nineties, um, you know, the, the, the joint community and special operations was, uh, was, it was getting fielded in, in, in a, in a capacity where they can actually, uh, it wasn't just a small niche mission, um, mission set, uh, 
U.S. SOCOM was founded in '89. It has uh, interesting, you know, interesting authorities, both as a combatant command and as a service, service-like authorities. So um, there were some growing pains then. You know, the special ops still, uh, still was trying to figure out, and and the larger service was trying to figure out how to use them. But I think early on, uh, particularly as after Desert Storm, with all the other uh, uh, smaller um, <clears throat> skirmishes that happened in the late nineties. I mean, I spent a lot of time in, Bo- in the Balkans and Bosnia, Serbia, um, in, in, in that period, I spent a lot of time in counter narcotics going to Latin America and other countries as a, as an advisor. Um, and there, you know, as, as opposed to being a, a straight aviator for me, I, you know, I had to join a team, uh, similar to like a special forces team. Uh, we called it an operational aviation detachment in 18, Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, 13 man, 14 man team, different, you know, I, I, I was one of the guys on the team at one point later, team leader, but um, different skill sets. We had to really rely on each other because we were out there usually outside the wire, living on our own and, and uh, uh, conducting uh, um, so, support operations or working with other countries. So teamwork and, and if you're in a crewed aircraft and even, you know, even in the fighter world, you know, you're, you're still in a formation you got to rely on the other guys. I mean, it, it really just it reinforces that. The other thing too is that it's funding for specific mission sets. You know, in the '90s and early '80s, you know, started in the '80s was flying at night, owning the night, and being and being able to take the fight to the enemy when they're least capable of fighting back um, or responding. And that's where, again, you know, tolerances for error are really low. Um, Again, we're flying truly at, at, you know, zero illumination. Our exercises were, you know, live fire, zero illumination, bad weather. Uh, you, you, you actually went out to look for that, and, and we'd fly in the darkest nights. And, and uh, so the teamwork, uh, crew coordination became even more uh, uh, more of an issue and, uh, and how well, you know, how closely we worked together. Uh, but again, they were funded specifically for that. And, and um, you know, I, I think, I, you know, Naval Aviation, Marine Corps Aviation also, um, in, in some cases, didn't, didn't get enough funding. And, and, you know, we usually talk about well, selection and all this other stuff. Um, looking back, it's like, you know, the selection and process that you go to flight school in the Marine Corps and the Navy, um, you know, you can conduct these missions that the special ops guys were doing. It's just that, um, you know, funding and, and being able to focus on that mission set is, was the difference. Yeah. So, you know, like in my squadron, you know, we were, we were all really close. It was kind of like, Hey, look, I'll make fun of my brother, but if you make fun of my brother, I'll beat the hell out of you. But on the, but, <laughs> what? Yeah. yeah. But on the, on the flip side too, we could be freaking brutal to each other. Um, you know, yeah. absolutely. I mean, we had right out, you know, almost brawls during debriefs. Yeah. Um, you know, where, where it was brutal and, and rightfully so. I mean, cause again, we couldn't tolerate, um, particularly when we were dealing with some of the most elite ground special ops teams, um, you know, that, it, you know, for them to get into those units, it's, you know, at least 10 years of, of, uh, service before they get into one of those units. And, and, you know, when we, when we have a time on target or, uh, or, or somewhere where we have to insert them, you know, a difficult place to get to, um, or we're on a long range ex- exfiltration and we, we tell them, you know, our, our tolerances were plus or minus 30 seconds. We'll be there. Right. Um, and, and within our, and within our own unit, we kept it even to tighter, tighter uh, tolerances. And it was, you know, plus or minus 10 seconds that you had to be on your target um, or where you're going to say you're going to be. So, with that said, in, 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 in any team that's high performing, there is competition and sometimes more the brutal competition can be inside of that team. Right. Um, uh, you know, and, and again, who's going to be flight lead, who's going, who, you know, who's going to, there are certain uh, aircraft that are assigned to do certain things um, in, in a larger formation, who's going to do that, who's going to be, you know, command and control, all this other stuff, which again, you compete within your team and um, you have to earn that slot. So, you know, but, but again, you have that pride of knowing once you're, once you've made that team, you know, you've made a cut 
and um, you know, they're brothers for life. Right. Uh, is the leadership different from what you saw? I mean, you, you think about, you know, think about organizations with little tolerance for error, probably very little tolerance for mistakes. What did you find different in that kind of high performing organization versus a, a regular organization? That you, had you know, interesting between rotary wing and fixed wing, you know, many times early on, you know, you get too close to a tree, you get too close to, to, uh, you know, you, you ding the blades on something. Um, there was more tolerance to that because of the higher risk that you were taking already to get to certain places. And it was considered part of doing business. Um, where, whereas in some of the larger fixed wing aircraft, you couldn't, you can't afford those type of, right. um, you know, uh, risk taking or risk. I wouldn't say risk avoidance because it's risk management and, and particularly in special ops, you know, we don't practice risk avoidance. We do practice uh, risk management. In fact, um, some of the formal risk management programs that were later used throughout the military were were started and perfected inside of special ops. So the bottom line was, hey, look, the mission was more important than if the, if the helicopter came back a little bit damaged, but the but the the mission was successful. We'll call that a victory. Versus a oh, yeah. and I'll tell you, and I'll tell you what, even even well after nine eleven, mm-hmm. you know there there was friction between the aviation operators, and I and I won't just say, you know, Air Force Special Ops Command, but between the op between that and the large in the uh, command, and when I you know either the ground forces command, the supported commanders, where they say, look, um, you know, uh, whether it's flying the aircraft, you know, as far as overflying hours, getting waivers for certain things. Um, you know, there were certain targets that were worth, uh, worth, worth the, uh, the extra, extra risk. Okay. So a little bit more high, high performing, high performing organization, a little bit more tolerant of risk, a little bit more tolerant of, you know, negative effects, you know, damaged aircraft, whatever, so long as the mission, so yeah, basically it was, you know, I, I, do you see that in other organizations you've been in? Do you see that same mentality? How, how does that change kind of how? No, I mean, again, you're you're not going to see you're not going to see that in a transport unit. You know, you're not you know in a combat unit different, but like on 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 some of the transport, even tactical transport, you know, tactical transport units, you don't see that level of risk tolerance. But again, also, you know, when I was at the the six special ops squadron, again, combat aviation advisors. The average age of my pilot um, when I was a squadron commander was uh, 36 years old. Um, so no one in that unit was a rookie. Mm-hmm. Um, the average age in my unit was was over 30, at, you know, 30 years of age. None, even my enlisted folks, uh, none, none, you know, none were staff sergeants. Uh, uh, we had no airmen in that unit. Um, you know, everybody was already a proven expert in their background before they came to our unit. So again, you're dealing, whereas, you know, if you're in a line unit, you know, co-pilots that just came out of flight school are still learning the way of flying. In the Pavlo squadrons, you know, at the beginning there, you know, when I got there, you already had to have a thousand hours. You already had to have served in a, you know, in a unit and you assessed to go in that unit. The army special ops, uh, uh, helicopter drivers, same thing. They had they had a minimum number of hours. They had to have already tactical background, and they had to try out for the unit. Gotcha. So yeah, basically a much more much more high performing operation. But you got an interesting. Um, so you got an interesting. Uh, yeah, background. You were uh, you know, a couple of years ago. You were uh, admitted to the Air Commando Hall of Fame. Yes, sir. You're the first aviator to be reinstated to combat status after losing a leg in a mishap. Correct. That took, um, so, so the, the congratulations on the Air Commando Hall of Fame, but I, I think the, uh, the losing a leg in a mishap, you had to learn a little bit of perseverance and I'm sure there <laughs> personal challenges there as well. Can you, can you talk about that? Sure. Absolutely. Um, so in 96, I was on a, a counter narcotics mission in Ecuador near the border of Colombia. Um, we were training Ecuador and joint forces, well, training them to be joint. Uh, so their their version of their naval infantry or their Marines, which the Navy Riverine 
craft and Coast Guard craft and their Army helicopter units, which were right nearby. Um, they had an incident where the FARC, the Revolutionary Forces of Columbia, had come across the, the border into the river, uh, into the uh, Rio Pupamayo, which is the border of Colombia and Ecuador. Later, the, Ecuador, the Colombians got one of the FARC leaders in that area um, years later. Um, but uh, it was uh, uh, an uncontrolled space. Uh, the Ecuadorian government had asked for support at that point. Um, we were there. Uh, I was there as part of a uh, joint special operations task force of air commandos and Navy SEALs and um, the predecessors to the combatant crewmen, uh, you know, the, uh, the the special boat drivers, as we refer to them in the Navy. Um, their their SBU or special boat unit um, out of Panama at that time. Uh, you know, we we trained together. We worked up, went through Panama, and then then uh, went to. Uh, to this uh, border area near Colombia, and uh, bottom line, I'm just going to get to it. Um, I was flying as a safety observer translator on an attack gunship helicopter, a single piloted helicopter, nonetheless. But uh, I was there to ensure that our, our guys wouldn't get shot, or, 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 or uh, you know, there wouldn't be any uh, any issues with the call for fire or close air support mission that they, that the Army was, uh, Ecuadorian Army was going to be providing to these riverine forces. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, pilot was flying way too low after an attack run. He was concerned about FARC scouts seeing him. You know, we were concerned about getting just too low to the ground and not being able to control the aircraft if I needed to fly it. And uh, at the end of the day, this one mission, myself and the Navy SEAL were on board and uh, pilot was just flying too low, about three feet maybe over the water, accelerating past 150 knots. And uh, I asked him to come up immediately. He said, okay. Next thing we knew, uh, we hit the water. Mm-hmm. Um, I, unbeknownst to me at the time, I was ejected from the cockpit. Um, Navy SEAL was still in the cockpit. He was able to get out after the aircraft hit the bottom. Um, I think it was about nine, ten feet maybe because the tail was still sticking out of the river, but the river was moving pretty quick, about four or five knots of current. Um, pilot died on impact. We didn't know that. Um, and again, I was ejected. I didn't even know I was still in, out of the aircraft initially. I was—I thought I was under uh, underwater starting starting our egress procedures. My Navy training, survival training, was kicking in, trying to keep the panic at bay. Um, I was able to make it to the surface, and and I remember, you know, calm myself down, go back under, prep myself for uh, for rescue. The Air Force had a different type of uh, life preserver than we did in the Navy. Mm-hmm. Um, it was more difficult to get to. I had broken ribs at the time. Uh, so, um, I guess through the ejection, I, I'd, uh, pretty much severed my left leg below the, right above the boot line at the calf. It was just attached by a calf muscle. My, my right knee was dislocated and my femur was fractured at the condyles. My, my ankle was out at another 90 degrees sticking out. And, um, as I got to the surface, I looked down at it and went, oh, wow, this is going to hurt. Once the pain sets in. Um, the other helicopter, Ecuadorian helicopter, Puma, that I was going to be on earlier that day was was out off on another mission. Um, and interesting enough, uh, uh, you know, a canoe, uh, two natives in a canoe ended up pulling up the river, pulled me up out, pulled me out of the uh, out of the river. I wasn't sure if they were FARC or good guys or bad guys. It didn't really matter at that point. I'd pretty much been bleeding out into the river. Uh, and there were piranha in that in that. Uh, in the uh in the canoe itself you know we, a week before we went through a survival training course there in the jungle and we actually ate piranha so luckily i didn't think about that while i was in the river because that probably you know could have taken me over the edge and you know i kid with my wife and and uh, other folks and i actually did uh you know the first time i talked about it in public was at church uh at, at my uh at my church as far as testimony and uh, i remember you know almost thinking I was going to die in that river and then guilt set in because um, my, my daughters were four and five at the time. And I was thinking about, you know, Hey, I could still be a good father. Um, you know, good husband. I need to get back to my, my, my girls. And, and, uh, I kid around that, uh, you know, I, you know, what, what was going to become of my kids growing up without me is their daughter. I said, even worse, maybe someone else is their father. And that's what, uh, you know, the incentive to keep alive in that river but, uh, you know, one of the biggest things we learn about teamwork and, and, and um, you know, about the story is, and it wasn't just, you know, 
it, it was the amazing rescue attempt and everything else that went on from there. Um, a SEAL team cleared this area out. Um, a combat controller uh, who was a former Marine recon uh, specialist swam out to the river. Um, the SEAL who was in the crash with me, uh, he was able to get out. He had he had cervical disc injuries. He had a big, he busted up his head and bleeding and broken ankle. He, he was still diving back into the water to pull the pilot out who had been pinned mm-hmm. and had died on impact, but we weren't aware of it at the time. I, I was trying to get my, my Heeds bottle, which, you know, many yeah. listeners, if they don't know, it's, it's a pony scuba tank that helicopter pilots carry. Um, I was trying to paddle back, you know, just with my hands. Um, at one point, even picking up my boot and flipping it over to, uh, to my right side, uh, hoping that it'd be reattached, but knowing that I had the Heeds bottle to possibly get to our Ecuadorian pilot who we thought might've been drowning. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, interesting enough, I was picked up out of the river by two natives in a canoe who were pulling up river. Um, a week prior to that, our seals raised the canoe for a, a Baptist missionary. I convinced the Ecuadorian pilots to go fly over the river they first didn't want to because they said we didn't have the money or they didn't have the fuel to do it. And I remember having an argument with one of the pilots going, hey, if you crash in the jungle and these villagers out there are kind of stuck between your government and the FARC, um, wouldn't you want them to kind of, you know, be the guys to come and get you? Because they're probably going to be firsthand, first ones to come and see you, at least wherever you are in the jungle. Um, you know, maybe this is a good community thing if we raise this canoe and uh, we found the canoe with an aircraft line over the river. It had been partially sunk, and then our Navy SEALs raised it. We were heroes. And a week later, almost to the day of that, I, was, uh, I wasn't pulled out of the river by that particular canoe, but um, I was pulled out of, of the river by two natives who, who, uh, didn't, you know, who had, you know, had the good fortune that they were going to take me towards the, the fire base that we were at, right. and that was implied. One of them spoke Spanish. The other one didn't. Um, so... Uh, on top of that, you know, the, the SEAL team, the, the two corpsmen that worked on me, there was an Air Force Special Ops flight surgeon there who was a member of our team who later, you know, became my son's godfather. Um, you know, the team was not going to let me die. I had been ble- pretty much almost bled out in that river. And, and I could see it in all their faces, you know, as I call it, gurney vision, as I was looking up to them. Um, and I remember this, this transition when the, rib- when the canoe got to the river's edge or to the, to the, this little camp that we were at. Mm-hmm. Um, and the team was there, the surge of like relief came over me. I'm like, all right. You know, and it was almost like a tag you're in. I remember grabbing the flight doc by his arm and going, doc, his name's Joe Basinger. You got to take me home to the girls and showing the girls. And, and then it was almost like this, this big relief. I'm like, all right, they got me. Uh, you know, they're, they, they're going to look after me. Um, and, and sure enough, he, on the opposite end, he was later, he told me, he's like, he had a couple of choice expletives, you know, as it is when we were back in the unit. He goes, man, all the pressure you put on me, now I had to make sure you were going to come back alive. Um, and he did. He, he spent the next 72 hours almost, you know, without any sleep by my side. He had to force the amputation. Because, um, uh, uh, again, I, I was still not out of harm's way. Right. At that period, they, they, they couldn't give me any drugs. They were just pumping me full of IV fluid and antibiotics. Later that afternoon, a C-130, an M- a special ops MC-130 that was in the Capitol, uh, the pilot and the crew there basically almost crash landed it in a 2,800-foot dirt strip in the cutout in the jungle that you know, only small airplanes were landed to that uh, mm-hmm. some of the oil companies were flying their exploratory rigs out. Uh, cruise to their exploratory rigs. Um, and, uh, you know, to the point that later I spoke to the roadmaster who was a Vietnam era vet and he, you know, he was telling the pilot, Hey, if a cow runs into the runway, just hit it. Cause we can't afford to hit the trees. You know, and the seals literally were hacking stuff away to make it wide enough and shooing people away. There were lean tos and goats and chickens running around. Um, I didn't visually see that, but I was out for that. That's later I was told that, um, C-130 was able to back out and then take off and they took me to the capital of Quito. Mm-hmm. I was in a hospital there, uh, for, for about two nights in the intensive care unit there. They, they had to finish my amputation there mm-hmm. when they tried to save my leg. And Joe was the one who had to force him to do it because my, 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 uh, my stats were getting really bad. Um, 
And then uh, a C-141 metalcore plane came out of uh, out of Travis Air Force Base, met with a critical care value evacuation team in Panama, flew down to Quito, Ecuador. I was on that plane later. I remember getting on the plane and seeing this big American flag, <laughs> and the crew let me keep it later. But they said that that flag was not only there to welcome me, but it was also there to drape my butt, you know, drape my body in case I didn't survive the flight home. Um, you know, my wife and my, my mom were flown to Wilford Hall from Florida. Uh, I met them there. Um, you know, I spent the next almost month in the hospital at Wilford Hall in San Antonio, which is now part of, uh, BAMSI, a larger trauma center. And so this was 96 again, you know, Bosnia was going on. Um, you know, no, we weren't in any major combat throughout the, throughout the world. So, um, you know, I was one of the few patients there in a the hospital. There was actually an, uh, there was a young, uh, Navy airman who had been run over by an F-14 on a carrier and, uh, his, his, and the, the, the jet jumped the chocks and, um, one of the main mounts went over his thigh mm-hmm. and he lost his leg. And he, we were the basic, like the two, uh, you know, um, I guess amputees in the hospital at that, that time getting a lot of attention from the docs. Wow. So, um, so you were there yeah. in San Antonio for what a month? You said a month in the hospital. Yep. So yeah. So my payload unit that was assigned to you know there, the, you know, the commander came out and saw me. Um, Navy Special Warfare. There's some folks in Navy Special Warfare that uh, had lost limbs in the past. We had a couple Navy SEALs already uh back in operational in the late night in the mid 90s there i got a lot of support from them my my squadron commander my air force squadron commander coin checked me you know here i'm butt naked in the hospital bed and he and he coin checked me so you know i said hey sir all i got is some morphine to give you if i have to buy you a drink but you know he said three things he goes john you're gonna you're you're gonna stay on active on active duty we're gonna get you a flight waiver you're gonna fly again and i want to get you an inter-service transfer to the air force and I remember sitting there in my bed going, you know, you son of a bitch. How can I, you know, you're right out lying to me. Um, you know, cause I wasn't sure if I'd ever walk normally again. In fact, you know, I thought I was going to lose both limbs in this, in this, uh, accident. Luckily I got to keep one. Um, and, uh, you know, I kind of you know, say that was my two for one deal with the man upstairs. You know, he gave me the grace to come home, uh, to my family. Um, and I didn't lose both legs in the, in the, uh, so how long, the outcome. how long was the rehab? Was that so, the hardest part? Uh, you know, early on the rehab, you know, and, and I'd say the psychological part was the early part, you know. So um, for me, physical therapy, you know, and getting into the gym was part of my, my emotional physical therapy. You know, I had a lot of guilt. You know, this pilot died at the same time I was, you know, just pissed off at him for trying to kill me. Um, you know, but again, I was home. So early on, it was that emotional turmoil about, you know, you know, when you're in the military and, and you know, you, you know, the, the sacrifice you make at flight school and everything else that you want to get, you know, it's not just a job, it's your identity. You know, you're a pilot, you're a combat pilot, you know, and at that point too, I was a special, you know, special ops, combat aviation advisor and pilot, you know, and, and so you're now you're dealing with your identity. You know, and not only that, you know, you know, was I ever going to dance with my wife again? Was I ever going to be able to play with my kids, coach them, play sports and running? Running for me was my therapy, you know, get, you know, get pissed off and I'd go for a run. So would I ever be able to do all that again? And um, sure enough, you know, Navy SEAL showed up. Uh, uh, One of the chaplains in the hospital was a former Marine aviator in Vietnam. He told me the story about a pilot that he saw in Pensacola with two wooden legs back in the late 60s or mid 60s when he was going through flight school there running the obstacle course and, and he put that bug in my ear about hey there was i don't know if this guy ever got the back to flight status or not uh but later i found out there was a navy pilot by the name of frank ellis who lost both his legs in an ejection in, the, in 63 um and then uh, later tried to go back to flight status and he landed every aircraft you can imagine on the carrier uh, did all kinds of guinea pig testing. Uh, the Navy uh, gave him a partial waiver, but he was restricted to a ferry unit, and he could, I guess, not be in command of an aircraft. Um, he later went to Naval Postgraduate School, got his master's in engineering. He even applied to the space program, the Gemini program, and 
you know, he said his, his height was, was adjustable because back then the capsules were so small. Um, and supposedly he made a, a, a final list in the Navy and uh, Navy senior leadership, whoever it was, uh, removed him from the list because they didn't want to send a disabled guy to NASA. So he, he was a little disgruntled. He retired. And then uh, I didn't find out about him indirectly through, uh, uh, well, first the bug in my ear about, uh, you know, by this, this uh, chaplain. And then later I was at the Naval Air Museum while I was in physical therapy because when I went back to Florida, I was going to Corey Station right near Pensacola every day for physical therapy. Um, interesting enough, you know, I went through AOCS and, uh, you know, my wife, when I used to kid around with my wife about, uh, you know, she was surprised how good my attitude was. Um, I said, look, if I made it through Gunny Holtry, you know, that was my, yep. my, uh, you know, I remember that guy. Gunner, Gunnery Sergeant Holtry, the United States Marine Corps. You had to say the whole thing. And, <laughs> and I remember going, if I made it through him, you know, I could get, I could get through anything. It was interesting. Cause you know, you heard stories about seer training and man, if I made it, you know, guys who survived, you know, all kinds of all horror stories in Vietnam and, and, you know, and they go, they go back to their Siri training and those that went through AOCS go back to their, you know, their drill instructor. And it was interesting. All that was coming back to me, you know, and it, and, and it was uh, funny. So at that time in 96, um, master gunnery sergeant Holtree was the chief drill instructor down at AOCS and it, it just transitioned to, a, you know, OCS. Okay. So my wife went out there on her own. She said she had never been so intimidated when she walked into the, into the battalion there with all the Marine DIs. She goes, I've been around all these special ops guys and everything, but never have been so intimidated. So she went and told the story. Hey, my husband's going through physical therapy. He keeps talking about you, Gunny, or Master Gunner Sergeant. And so he, she, she set up this uh, reunion. And I remember sitting in this, you know, she, my wife encouraged me to get my, my hair cut you know, I was in physical therapy. My unit said, John, your job right now is to get strong again. And you're in physical therapy every day to the point that my squadron commander, uh, when the Navy was calling back to the Air Force unit going, hey, we need to transition him to a Navy hospital. He said, nope, he's on assignment right now. And it's classified. <laughs> my assignment was going to physical therapy. And uh, so I had cover from my Air Force unit, cover from Navy Special Warfare Command, or from particularly Dev Group and some of the SEALs that were uh, mentoring me to get, you know, to get back into shape. And, um, and, and so that, you know, that, that's what was going on in that period. So the biggest lesson from there was, you know, some of the stuff that we, you know, we early on endured, how that carries you through, you know, and we call it stress inoculation. You know, you, yep. you taste a little bit of it. And if you're ever tested, you never know how, you know, if you are going to be tested, but, um, you know, I had the support of my, my, you know, my family, um, you know, and, and I say, you know, I tell people when I talk about this, it's faith, you know, so it's not only just my, you know, my personal faith in God, which to me was the most important part of this, but the faith in my family, the faith in my team, you know, just the, the write down, you know, when we use the word faith, as opposed to just believing in something, you know, it's unquestionable. I knew my, you know, that faith that I had in my team that, they, you know, they came through and brought me home. Um, you know, I'll, I'll never forget that. And later, you know, that, that, uh, you know, later when I was in command and everything else, you know, all the other combat missions I was in later, you never forget that. And it stays with you. Um, you know, and I'll just, cause I'm jumping around here. Interesting enough, but you know, the pilot that flew the C-130 into that jungle, Brian Downs, um, his family and I are connected forever. He, you know, the sad part of this is, uh, Brian, later uh, was under my command in Iraq in 2005. And I lost him um, along with three other Air Force special operators and an Iraqi pilot who I consider a brother um, in a crash near Erbil. And, um, you know, I had to inform his wife that, uh, and his kids that, uh, that we lost Brian that day. And that was, that was in the, in the in, you know, one of the toughest parts of this. This was on, on Memorial Day oh. in 2005. But again, all those things you learn, you know, that's hard to, to you know, it's hard to, uh, to describe to someone in business or, you know, that doesn't have a military background. Um, well, that, you know, it's, it's real interesting. You talk about, you, you talk about the, uh, the, gunner, the, the gunny sergeant, aviation officer candidate school. And, you know, it was, it was the one thing that you, you had to get in your head. The training is hard, but it will save your life. And that's yep. what I try to. That's what I try to instill in some of these kids that I mentor. Um, 
over at the local universities. I look, you know, I'll ask the hard questions now and you may think I'm a jerk, but ultimately I'm only trying to help you. It's a little bit of tough. Exactly. It's a little bit of tough. You know, exactly. And, and, you know, in, so you, in corporate America, you, you almost wish people would be equally as candid. It's like, hey, look, yeah, we're going to be hard on you, but, you know, don't get offended. We're, we're really trying to help. In a lot of ways, we're just trying to help. Yeah, you know, and in one area you see that in is when you're dealing with venture capitalists, <laughs> you know, and investors. You know, they're like, hey, you know, there's a bottom line there and there's a reason why, you know, you're, we're not in business just to give you a job. You know, there, there's, a, there's an end game here. So, um, but, you know, interesting, Master Gunnery Sergeant Poultry later as a commander, and, and you know that you, you remember sticks, and, you know, my class, we started with 71. I think 67 actually made it that first night. You know, you know, some people just turned around. So we're, I think we're like 60, 60 something uh, candidates. And by the end of hell week, we were down to 21 and that same 21 graduated, yep. you know, and, um, and that was, you know, I'm sure the numbers were the same, you know, similar for other, other, other classes throughout that. But, uh, you know, 10 years later, you know, I, I met up with whole tree in this restaurant he asked my wife, does he need the motivation? He said, no. She goes, but I think it'd be cool if you went out and see him. You know, and, and like these, and these are super dated, dedicated drill instructors. He still had, you know, the, the plaque with our coins on it. He went back and looked up my name. He still had a stack of t-shirts from all his classes. He went back to my class, brought the t-shirt out to me when I met him for lunch, a surprise thing. I remember sitting in this restaurant with a with the, you know, with my high and tight, because my wife said, oh, you look so cute, and I want you to high and tight, because she was setting me up for this meeting with, uh, with Master Gunner Sergeant Holtree, and I could hear his voice, you know, what's this, I hear about a fallen angel, you know, you get that, yep. the hairs on the back of your neck stand up, and, I, and he, you know, exchanged stories, He's, he had done some uh, riverine advising in, in, um, in, in Central America also, so, you know, he brought a candidate with him who was injured, who had an Achilles injury in order for me to use me as an example to this kid he goes here's this lieutenant who's fighting to get back on flight status and you're worrying about this little injury you had on the obstacle course so you know these guys are like machines they never stop right. um but later you know he he uh he had me come out and talk to the class but more importantly um throughout my uh recovery you know it got to a point where you know, I'll just get to it. You know, the Naval Medical uh, Aerospace Medical Institute or NAMI, um, they, they got involved and um, they had Frank Ellis's records. Mm-hmm. Uh, who, Mr. You know, I ended up getting in touch with Mr. Ellis by accident. Initially, NAMI said, "This has never happened. There's no way we never had a pilot with you know with, with amputation fly." Fly and they even let me look through their microfish records. And by by chance, by chance meeting at the Naval Air Museum by a Marine aviator said, you know, retired Marine aviator, because he saw my, I walked in with my prosthetic uh, one of the days after physical therapy and I had my Navy wings embedded in the front of my prosthetic. And he asked me what, you know, my story was. And I told him I'm trying to get back on flight status. And he goes, have you ever heard of Frankie Ellis? I said, no, sir. I was told this, this guy never existed. He goes, well, that's BS. We're doing a story on him right now. Naval aviation magazine. And uh, so I was able to get in contact with Mr. Ellis. And on the phone, when I first told him what was going on, it was, you know, silence. And he said, son, I'm wiping tears from my eyes because I've waited for this call for 30 years. And he goes, it's BS. I got all my records. He drove them up to Pensacola from Ocala. And uh, and then the uh, chief of the the Air Medical uh, Waiver Division there said, you know, brought me in. He goes, all right. Here's the timeline, you know, that we're going to be testing you on stuff. And then, uh, and you'll have to go to the dunker. We had, I mean, I, I was in all kinds of simulators. I was running around in the Eglin range being chased by people, by, you know, uh, forces to show that I could, uh, I can, you know, I, that I can right. evade. And then later, yeah, later I was, uh, you know, I sent out to the USS Wasp to run around on the ship to show that I could go everywhere on a ship. Um, I did some simulator flights and, you know, had to, you know, uh, carry people out of aircraft, all this stuff. A couple, you know, it was really, it, it went really quickly. I, I remember it was in August and I'm thinking, you know, I'm not, you know, am I ready for this physically? And, and, uh, they videotaped me during the whole water survival, uh, refresher training. They stuck me in the back, the very back of the dunker while it was full, 
you know, so my, your, your, your last ride in the aircraft bunker, um, while you're blindfolded, you know, full of people in the aircraft, you'll have to get out of the same place. I remember the first round in it, I was thinking, oh, this is easy. I, I, I was considering taking my leg off and handing it to one of the rescue divers, but I figured, nah, better not do that. It's being videotaped. I don't want to jinx myself. Um, uh, during that period, Mr. Perot, Ross Perot Sr. got involved. Um, through one of the Navy SEALs, the Navy SEAL commander of SEAL Team 4, uh, was you know, deployed with one of his platoons, um, got in contact with Mr. Perot. Mr. Perot had this informal network of special ops folks. Mr. Pro got in, uh, in touch with me and said, hey, you know, he assumed I was going to get out. He was going to offer me a job. And I told him what I wanted to do. And he said, wow. He goes, well, you know, he contacted Corey Station, even offered to buy equipment that, you know, that the station may need to help me get back. Mr. Pro has done this for a lot of other folks, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, eventually I got to a Navy, Navy Board of Flight Surgeons, which was similar to that movie, uh, um, Men of Honor, where right. uh, Cooper Gooden Jr. plays Master Chief Bashir. Uh, interesting enough, Master Chief Bashir came to me, came to see me while I was in the hospital for my second knee surgery when I was at Portmouth Port Naval Hospital and came and talked to me. And uh, the, the gentleman who's, who makes my legs to this day, he had made Carl Bashir's legs earlier. And, uh, you know, his, his, his talking with one of the Navy SEALs talks were like, Hey, if we could still swim and jump and out of airplanes and stuff with a prosthetic, uh, the quote was, you can get your fat ass back in a helicopter and fly. (laughs) (laughs) That was the motivation I got from a Navy SEAL and from Master Chief Bashir. Um, so, you know, when I was back for my formal board of flight surgeons, after all this guinea pig stuff, where they had all the senior flight surgeons and, uh, in the Navy uh, and the Admiral there who was running NAMI, uh, you know, had, it was a formal board and they presented it to the flight surgeon college. And uh, interesting enough, one of my, uh, and I don't know if you remember this name, Charlie Godinez, who was another helicopter pilot, went to flight school uh, with me. At that time was going back through uh, NAMI in the flight surgeon's course. So he was in that, he was there, you know, the brother to, to watch this happen, this historic event happen. And um, Master Gunnery Sergeant Holtry shows up in his class A's and the Admiral asked him, hey, Gunny, what are you doing? You're Master Guns, what are you doing here? He said, sir, I don't know if you know this, but, you know, Lieutenant Alvarez was in my class back in 1987 and, uh, excuse me, in 87. And uh, if he made it through me, he can get through anything and I'm here to support him. <laughs> so I'm wondering if that if that weighed in, no, you know, you know, on the final decision there of the flight surgeons, they voted, and um, there was one flight surgeon who I, I heard was at first against it, and then later uh, they revoted again. It was a unanimous vote to unrestricted waiver back to flight status. So um, by the time all the paperwork was signed and everything, and I and I had my first flight back in helicopter, um, it was just under a year. So I didn't lose my flight pay, you know, and uh, I have my little, uh, you know, that, that form you get when you're, when you're grounded in the air force, it's a DNIF, it's a yep. DNIF. Uh, um, so I have that, I have that little uh, form um, in a frame. Um, so yeah, just, I, it was just like a week short of a year that I was grounded and I, and I was back on official flight status and that was in September of 87, 97. I went back to flying Pablos, uh, uh, particularly it stayed in a Pablo unit at that point, you know, went back to, uh, to the Balkans for the, uh, for the Kosovo war. Uh, my team is the one that rescued the, uh, the current air force chief of staff, uh, the F-16 shoot down. It was our unit that also led the rescue of the spell fighter, but it was my, I was, I was in, um, you know, in theater and, uh, I was our mission commander for our, our team that went out there. Uh, our guys picked him up. And then uh, after that, um, I went back to the 6SOS as an assistant uh, director of operations. Um, we were, you know, we were actually at that point starting to fly the, a lot, the MI-17 and other Russian aircraft uh, to become well-versed with that. And then um, went off to NATO and then 9-11 happened, you know, and then after 9-11, obviously the world changed for everybody, particularly in the military. Um, so that I was actually in, a, in an exercise, 
in Bulgaria when 9-11 happened. And um, I was able to get all our special ops guys out of there. Uh, and, deploy, you know, to, there was a, uh, uh, a Marine recon team that basically from, from there went straight into theater. Um, also trying to get some of the, uh, the Air Force special ops guys that were there out so that they could deploy. Um, after that, I went back to Hilbert Field. Um, I was ops op officer for the Six Special Ops Squadron. Um, we're standing up a qualification course for our, our combat aviation advisors at that period. Um, you know, the invasion of Iraq happened. Um, we were involved in Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Colombia. We had, you know, had the hostages in Colombia. Mm -hmm. Um, I had guys worldwide everywhere, Yemen, Philippines. Um, that was an, a, a very, very, uh, stressful, very uh, heavily deployed period in my life. Um, before that, you know, in 98, um, we had another child, you know, and, and, and I thank my, uh, my, uh, special ops brothers for keeping me alive. In fact, the flight surgeon, Joe Basinger was with me as my son's godfather. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was an interesting period. I guess my last, uh, so I served another 15 years as an amputee. You know, I was fortunate enough to be the, you know, as far as we know, the first, uh, for sure helicopter pilot to go back to combat duty and a first pilot in the U S to go back to combat duty. So what in World War II, there was a British, British guy who actually went back to combat. So we got about you know, two, three minutes left. What did you, you know, what did you learn? You know, if you're telling somebody, what'd you learn through it all? Obviously perseverance, perseverance. You had a lot of support. Well, you know, and, and it's, it's not so much what I, well, I'll tell you what I, I, I got, you know, after this, I don't consider this a, a uh, you know, a dis, you know, that I'm disabled. I, I, I could do just about everything I, I used to do before. I mean, I can't point my toes. Um, you know, I, and, and now as I'm getting older, I got a lot of other aches and pains and have had several surgeries and stuff. But, I, the, you know, I truly consider this a gift. I learned so much, particularly about not judging others about what their physical or mental um, restrictions are you know one of the things i learned is in and, and again navy seals will tell you this when they go through buds anyone who's gone through you can you can tolerate and you can withstand more than you think you can um you know and some people say hey you know god doesn't give you the rucksack that you can't carry you know you you can persevere and um and, and you, and, and, you know, you come out the other end, I think better for it. Um, for me, I was able to, to, to see that all the training, all the things that we were, you know, taught, um, you know, that they're true, you know, those are truths. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, for me, it was faith, you know, that got me all through this. I mean, I'm successful in, in, in the, in the job I'm in now. Um, you know, you put a lot of other things into perspective too <laughs> about, uh, you know, what's important in life, you know, where, where people start to stress out over stuff and you go, well, you know, there's a lot of other stuff out there that can be worse. So it helps you put things in perspective. Oh, good. Why don't we wrap it up there? We've had a, we've, we've done a good, uh, good 50 minutes. Let's wrap it up and then uh, let's revisit it another time. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll tell some more of your story. How's that sound? Excellent. Yeah. You know, interesting enough, my, uh, my daughter also runs a podcast, but it's a fantasy podcast. She's got one that she's producing and uh, she's a voice actress in a couple and she's writing a book on, and it's already in its second edition. We're trying to see you know, when, if it's going to get published uh, about our little, uh, you know, this, this incident, which I used to tell people it's a good reader's digest story, but uh, you know, how we're, we're taught the, the term, you know, crawl, walk, run. Uh, the name of the book is Walk, Run, Fly Again. So um, hopefully, maybe by next year, we'll see a publisher. And, uh, and then hopefully people get to read about it. Awesome. Hey, let's come back uh, another time. Tell us more of your story. Yes, sir. Thanks, John. Thanks for being on today. Thank you. You've been listening to the Aerospace Executive Podcast. Again, you can download these on iTunes and Podbean. They're also found on YouTube as well. Just Google Aerospace Executive Podcast. I'm Craig Pickin. Hey, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions, um, give me a call, 910-509-7129.
or email me, Craig at NorthStarESG.com. Love to hear from you and uh, thank you for listening.